You are listening to The Crisis Beat with Dr. Mark Crowther and Brady Wood. Hi there, and welcome back to The Crisis Beat. This is episode two, and today's date is September 5th, 2022. My name is Brady Wood, and I'm a business owner and public relations professional. I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, who in his other life, is the chair of medicine at McMaster University. Mark, in terms of how we came to start this podcast and our relevant expertise, having both worked very senior roles in healthcare, I think it's worth mentioning how many major institutional crises we have both uh, managed. Yeah, thanks, Brady. I think this was something that when we started to discuss doing this podcast that I found really quite interesting, that in healthcare, we face crises on a very regular basis that most other businesses would only encounter maybe once or twice a decade or even less. And and uh, the the the, the uh, discussion that we had really focused around some of your initial work uh, when you were the director of public relations at a couple of local major hospitals. And then we've had a lot of further discussions as we encountered stuff both in the news, but also in our personal life around crises, which might bring another business to their knees, which realistically are just day-to-day encounters in the healthcare world. Yeah, I think I mentioned it in the past podcast, but as I started to count the number of crises that I'd handled that I think are, you know, were major newsworthy, many national, many involving life or death, you know, you easily hit that number of 50 and beyond. And as you learn those ropes, you learn that there is a rhythm and a way to these things. Healthcare is unique in that you have so many crises that you become practiced. So there isn't a sort of algorithm or a best a suite of best practices that are certainly helpful to crisis communications. And I think where you and I connected was fascinated often when things went wrong. So some of these these scandals and salacious events are most interesting from the peculiar ways that leaders handle them when I, I think sometimes, not to sound too judgmental, you, you would expect them to know better. Yeah, I think, Brady, one of the mottos of this podcast is it took you 37 years to build this business and 37 seconds to destroy it. And unfortunately, we see that played out over and over again. And oftentimes, it's because of the people who have the ability to mitigate or modify the trajectory of the crisis just don't have the basic skills to be able to understand how you can manage it. And in fact, oftentimes they sort of steer into the terminal dive, meaning that you know they actually make things worse through their comments or their approaches to the problem. And as you know, as a professional in this field, and I as a, someone who's experienced it frequently, there's a whole series of steps that you should just uh, pull the trigger on immediately. And once you've started that process, it, it'll almost for certain steer you out of the issue. And in fact, some businesses actually manage to benefit in an odd kind of way from a crisis because of their approach to its management. Yeah, absolutely. There are, on that last note, many cases where a a business does better after its handling of its crisis than before. It bolsters its reputation, often by making kind of positive changes. And then I know something we'll get into, another strange phenomenon is what you and I have been referring to as the, the peculiar case of the bad actor, someone who behaves very poorly during the crisis, but that bolsters their reputation through notoriety as opposed to for positive reasons. So Mark, one thing we've discussed we'll do as a regular feature of this podcast moving forward is talking about the news of the week. So I wondered if there are any crises in the news that kind of hit your radar and I might might mention one or two as well. Yeah, thanks Brady. All kinds of them. I think every time you 
open up an electronic news source, you see examples of this. And I'm just going to highlight one that some of the listeners may have heard about. There was an unfortunate restaurant in the north of Toronto within the last couple of weeks that accidentally poisoned a whole series of their patrons with the highly toxic substance used in some forms of Chinese traditional medicine. But after careful preparation to remove the toxin, the, the generally the, the the class has got a name, but it's most familiar to many of the listeners as a, a flower that appears in a lot of gardens and known as monkshood or wolfsbane, or there's a whole class of them all together. And, and apparently the roots of these things can be properly prepared, and then they're used in some forms of both cooking and also traditional Chinese medicines. But if not prepared correctly, they are highly toxic. And and I, I really do feel for the owners of the this restaurant who inadvertently, but quite seriously, poisoned a large number of their of their patrons, including sending some to the intensive care unit. It sounds like, fortunately, none of them are going to have died from this and all will eventually recover. There's no specific antidote for this stuff. And there's no way the company could possibly have known because it appears that it actually contaminated a spice product, which was purchased commercially. Also begging the question then of who else is going to suffer the same toxicity because presumably this is not the only place to have purchased that spice product. But it just struck me that, you know, the owners of this restaurant kind of headed for the hills, although they did early on say that they were cooperating with the authorities. There was not a lot of news from them specifically and probably another missed opportunity for them to properly manage a crisis about which they had nothing to do. They didn't cause it. And in the end, you could actually see them benefiting from this or at least increasing their customer base because although not positive, they got an enormous amount of free advertising out of this event. I just, that's the kind of thing, Brady, I think we, we can comment on in future episodes as they crop up. Lots of other stuff this week spreading all over, some at the governmental level and, and elsewhere. But did you you said you had a couple of stories you thought might be worth just mentioning? Yeah, I mean, I might just circle back on the restaurant. I mean, I, I think that could obviously go either way. I have a feeling that that restaurant won't recover and it may not be your fault, as they said. So I would be pretty hesitant to eat there. Although I, living in Toronto, I now know the name of that restaurant and I hadn't heard of it before. But the other side of it, you're right. I mean, there was probably an opportunity for the owners there as well to have made a plaintive case for themselves, at least more than more than they did and 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 in future as well. So I think silence could be deadly in a case like that, especially if it wasn't your fault. But again, tough to regain a customer base when you've poisoned people. Yeah. Uh, and and have... like really you know, sending people to hospital, there's you can give people food poisoning and make a lot of people sick. But when people start hanging up in the hospital, that's sort of taking it to a whole and another, again, completely inadvertent level and an area where if you're a business owner, you want to make sure that you have a crisis management plan that you have thought through and hope that you never have to implement a crisis management plan is probably the the best form of insurance you can have for your small business and insurance that you hope you never have to actually use. Yeah, I think I think it's a fair point. I mean, if you aspire to own a restaurant as an independent person or in some kind of conglomerate, it's probably good to have an approach on the books related to how you would handle something like this. Because these do pop up, I would say every every quarter you read about some place that's had something like this happen. And I'm I'm I expect that if we do the research, these these restaurants don't fare well. And I would certainly want to have something in place if I was a restaurant owner about how I would handle something like that. But yeah, I think I think Mark, the other one where it's kind of like bad actor stuff that's huge in the news right now is is Trump and these FBI files that were stored at Mar-a-Lago, and you know, just seeing him kind of turn this into more of a political back and forth. I don't know where. I think it's dangerous to say where we might stand on it, but it appears that he did 
take documents he shouldn't have and stored them inappropriately. And now he's trying to say that the FBI is out to get him. And that seems to be, you know, he's he had a huge pep rally this weekend. So he's a case, I think, that we would all agree of a bit of a bad actor where saying some pretty inappropriate things early in the campaign kind of propelled him forward in some strange way. Being contrarian and being seen as like an outside person has really advantaged him. So maybe a, a topic for a future case, but that's that's loud in all of the media this weekend is around this this case of purloined top secret documents. And, uh, and a president politicizing it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Not a topic you want to touch with a 10-foot pole. I suppose we're going to touch a lot of topics with that we shouldn't be touching during the course of the podcast. So I look forward to those discussions in future. And also, I think there's some equivalent issues in Europe right now, for example, that with the switching off of the natural gas supply to large areas of Europe and it being blamed at least in part on mm-hmm maintenance issues, which are blamed at least in part on Canadians fixing various pieces of machinery. And again, not, I would say, a very swift management of the flashback of from those decisions from multiple different levels. Again, just illustrating the fact that being prepared to manage these kind of things is, is really a necessity if you're in the public eye in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 100%. So Brady, we're going to switch gears now and move into the the, the topic of the week, and we've entitled this one, the influencer files or something along those kind of lines. So this is an area that you live in, and this is an area that I really have just only passing familiarity with. So I'm going to do the most of the questioning and you're going to do most of the answering on, on this section. The first thing is going to start off for those people out there like me who are really unfamiliar with this ecosystem. Can you tell us a little bit about, about what a cult, what an influencer is and, and the importance of influencers in the culture that we're going to talk about today? Absolutely. Yeah, Mark, this is a phenomenon that I think both you and I have been really fascinated by, by seeing the economics of it in particular. So there was a time when people seemed to be going viral for either shenanigans or beauty online. And that is transmuted in the last 15 years into a fairly significant section of the entertainment economy. So you now have folks that have multi-million human followers, and that translates to ad revenue dollars. So on a platform like YouTube, if you have several million followers and you're producing videos fairly regularly, you make money both from the ads that run on YouTube and then also from product deals as one example. And so this is a whole new world. And and interestingly, it's very tied to the individual. So a lot of these folks start out as individuals. They don't have teams. They don't have management necessarily. And there has been a lot of kind of conjecture about the influencer apology videos of, you know, 10 or eight years ago, where these folks would say something off color and then apologize and cry and then keep producing their their material. And that and that sort of became a bit of a tongue-in-cheek joke about this, this segment of, of entertainer. But now we've moved into a world where there's actually quite a lot at stake, where people are building million and even billion-dollar businesses. So if you look at the Kardashians as an example in the sphere, they've been able to spin off brands, some of them worth upwards of a, of a billion dollars. So there's a, there's a lot at stake here. And I think that it's an area that we are both fascinated by. And I think it's ripe for a discussion about crisis for a number of reasons. So we picked an interesting, an interesting route into this. And that's an influencer from South Korea uh, named Jia or Song Jia, or as she is known online, Frisia. And so I'm going to explain a little bit about how this person came on our radar and what the crisis is involving her. And then maybe talk about some other crises in the sphere 
and and also what we might learn from how these folks are dealing with their their crises both well and poorly. So Mark, I'll kick it off. So this person came on my radar a little bit through a show that's hugely popular on Netflix, and it's a South Korean dating show. And it's actually a hybrid of Survivor and The Bachelor. And so you basically have these young Korean folks and they're on a, an island. And it's it's not by any means um, a bad setting. It's a nice setting, but it's sparse. And the way they get rewarded, like on Survivor, you know, someone gets exited from the island. At the end of each episode, folks need to try to pair up with someone who's mutually attracted to them. And so if they do pair up, if they say, I like you, and that other person says, I like you, they get to go to Paradise, which is like an overnight hotel stay somewhere really luxurious. So they get off the island if they find a, a matching pair. And I will say as a, a bit of a sidebar, it is a fascinating show in the sense of, I think it does a great service to my appreciation of South Korean culture. So as you can imagine, bring to mind any North American reality show. And I don't think people usually behave in the most dignified ways. It's a, it's very salacious content. There's usually a lot of bad tattoos and evidence of poor upbringing. And interestingly, this South Korean show, everyone is really tidy, meticulously dressed, very kind to one another, very genuine in the way they express their feelings for each other. And even the commenters, where usually a, a North American commenter would probably be making fun or judgmental of the contestants. All of the all of the commenters that are part of the show are also just very genuine and encouraging. So it it really felt like a bit of a bomb on um, the kind of allergy I have to some of the things in North American culture, and I think that's why it became popular. A lot of people feel that way. A bit so, of a bomb spelled B A L M, not B O M B. B A L M, yes, not B O M B. Thank you, absolutely. So Brady, yeah, that sounds super interesting. And, and how does that lead into our story today about the this this influencer and the 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 trials and tribulations that she went through? Right. So Gia or Frisia, she has a, a multi-million person following. And, and on the show, by the way, she was probably the most she was the contestant most popular with the male contestants. So it seemed like everyone really kind of favored her. And she, all of the contestants on the show wear a lot of luxury. Even the men are wearing like Hermes bracelets and expensive watches. And, you know, it's, it's sort of a tidy, casual look that everyone's wearing. And she might have been one of the showier contestants. And so it was discovered by some eagle-eyed watchers that the clothing that she wore on the show some articles of designer clothing, like Christian Dior, for example, were actually fake knockoffs of the designer brands. And as soon as this was recognized, it created quite a stir online amongst the South Korean watchers of the show. They felt betrayed and were quite vocal about that. And fairly immediately, this was back in January, Jia had to, well, how she handled the crisis, it's, it's worth noting is she posted an, a single apology and deleted her social media. So part of the apology reads, I apologize once again for all the circumstances that have occurred due to infringing on designers' creations and ignorance of copyrights. As someone who has a dream of launching a brand, I will seriously recognize and reflect on the controversial parts. And so... She's basically shut down the churn of activity on her social media channels, erased previous posts for the time being, and was actually cut from another reality TV show, which probably would have been a fairly lucrative deal for her. Interesting to speak to that culture. I don't think if Britney Spears or I'm trying to think of some Julia Fox 
or knockoff designer that people would react in this way in North America. So this is something very particular to that culture, which I'd almost stop there and flag and say, um, to be prepared for a crisis, you must know your audience. Because I don't, uh, I don't know that I would have predicted that that would be something that would be almost a career-ending scandal for someone. But in her case, it certainly, it sounds like it, it knocked her out of any kind of influencer productivity from January to, to July. And just recently, she started reposting on social media. So I don't know. I don't know if she. I guess the calculation is she's been to influencer purgatory for this misstep, and now she's she's reemerged and is is being productive again. And and so Brady, I couldn't agree more that one of the things that I that a corporation business individual who's talking about crisis management, you know, you really need to understand your 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 community. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about a restaurant inadvertently poisoning a bunch of people through no fault of their own. And, you know, you you might not go back to that restaurant. Uh, on the other hand, you know, you could see the whole community, if it's positioned correctly, coming to their support and, and having faith in their ability. And, you know, reopening day could be a gigantic, if spun correctly, could be a gigantic event. I guess I wonder when I hear about these the, this young person who has these, I would say, extraordinary skills, how much of her her for her asking for forgiveness was real and i have absolutely no insight into korean culture so i i'm not commenting on korean culture and how much of it was actually done with the advice and support of people like yourself as a way of yourself to be able to rehabilitate her image at some point in the future yeah i mean that's that's i, I like by the way the the connection back to the restaurant issue it's really interesting that you're right that that could have been a major save for that restaurant if they pay if they were able to paint themselves as a victim and garner the support of their local community to say, you know, this is de- this is derailing a family business, for example, and do a reopening of some sort, et cetera. Yeah, that, that would have been a way back. In her case, yeah, there are some things that are actually hard to for us to triangulate on or to diagnose. So I don't know how her apology landed. And I'm reading, you know, basically North American articles on things like BuzzFeed that are sort of digesting this controversy for us. But I, I can see there's another apology that's that's written here in an article where she's, she writes, I admit that everything is my fault. When I think about my past self, I think about how pathetic I was. I should have reflected deeply inward when people were rooting for me. So it, it does, you know, there does seem to be some some genuineness in that that seems to, it reflects to me that this, this crisis was very real for that community. But again, I don't, it's hard for me to triangulate how did it land? Yeah, I can see that being being a real issue because you really do need to have the cultural context to understand, and and we just obviously can't under we don't have that cultural context. I, I do wonder though whether or not you know the the sudden deleting of all of this person's social media profile when when their entire galaxy was that social media profile does strike me as being very sincere. I, I think the other thing I was immediately drawn to as a health professional is the impact on this person. And and it sounds like she's back, which means that she has recovered from the, I'm sure, very profound impact that this had on her perceptions of herself. So now, just moving it along the, the story then, Brady, so tell me a little bit about the brand affiliation impact of this and, and what you think that how, how that added to the to the uh, to the situation. 
Yeah, and Mark, I, th- I think you're right, by the way, to mention the mental health component of this. So certainly this could be massively destructive. And I think that is sort of the risk of influencer culture in the sense that this person is is massively exposed. And without a strong team around her, it's hard to know what kind of consequences she might be be facing. So if she's in this world sort of alone, that's pretty heavy when you get tens of thousands of people commenting negatively. And I think all influencers deal with this to some degree. These, these people can have body image issues, mental health issues, et cetera. So in these cases, it's often very hard to quantify. And especially us as outsiders, I can't look at Gia's bank account, for example, and see what's happened or even the effect on the brands themselves. There was an excellent article from February of 2010 by um, Christopher Niddle and Victor Stango, and it was about shareholder value destruction following the Tiger Woods scandal. And in the abstract here of the article, it says, uh, we estimate that in the days beginning with Tiger Woods' recent car accident and ending with his announced indefinite leave from golf, shareholders of companies that Mr. Woods endorses lost five to 12 billion in wealth. So the more we have a way, and I, I, maybe in a future podcast, it'd be worthwhile on this to look at the quantification methods that these folks use to make this, uh, this projection. But I would, I would absolutely be curious to see more of that. So in her case, it does seem like she lost a show. So she probably had a contract that she was counting on. I don't know what someone makes to be on a show like Singles Inferno, but she was cut from another show. And I think, I think she was cut from some of the footage of Singles Inferno as well. Yeah, Brady, you know, I think just you were speaking a, a bit ago about Tiger Woods and and I, I, there's actually probably a real brand lesson here because when you said Tiger Woods accident, he's had two big accidents. The first one was the one that led to the destruction that you identified. And more recently, the terrible accident he got into where he was grievously injured. And in that particular circumstance, um, very different public reaction, very different impact on himself. And and don't know much about the circumstances of the second accident versus the first accident but in reality i think a, there was a, there was a much more much less impact of the second accident than the first accident on on tiger woods the enterprise and i wonder how much of that was actually guided by a public relations engine that was put in place after the first one because as you said not only did the brands lose value with that first episode but I, mr woods also lost significant revenue and and clearly his goal would be to prevent that from happening if he were to have any future untoward events and i suspect he probably had another one with his second accident and had much less impact on him personally although his health obviously suffered greatly yeah you i i think you're right like my i'm just my gut reaction to hearing about the second accident is that when i when i reflect on it it went better for him so somehow the there would just seem to be news that he was hurt in an accident, but it didn't it didn't really I mean, I don't actually know if if he was at fault in that accident, if he was intoxicated. So I'm going to assume that that's not the case. But again, the coverage didn't seem to go in a in a particularly negative bent for him. Yeah, I think there was yeah, again, I'm only from news reports. He clearly was at fault. It was a single vehicle accident. There were reports of extraordinarily high speeds as uh, as as my friend the police officer says it is never the train's fault. And the same here, I believe he hit his tree, hit a tree. And it's extraordinarily unlikely that it was the tree's fault. So, you know, but I do think that the, the, the public relations response here, whether intentional or unintentional was much better for him. Agreed. I totally agree. 
Right. Let's move away from a discussion about uh, Tiger Woods' unfortunate lack of fortunes and and back to our influencer discussion with respect to the South Korean young lady who found herself in trouble as a result of wearing brands which were identified to not be authentic. Her disappearance from the social media universe for six months and her recent reemergence. So, you know, Brady, what what do you think about that strategy of disappearing and then reemerging? And and given your experience in this domain, which I know is pretty extensive, you know how did how does she move forward, and and where does she go from here? And I guess we we had a little bit of a focus on this idea of a bad actor. You know, could she turn this into something positive? Yeah. So I think in this case, Mark, it's it seems clear to me. I think her genuineness is is truly genuine. So I think that she felt she had to bow to the public limelight. She asked for forgiveness. She did it in a in a fairly bold way of closing out her account to some degree for some period of time. And and now I think that I, I think that maybe where she may have missed a beat, and I'm not sure what the answer would be, is how do you bolster your reputation after the fact? So in this case, for example, she's been accused of being ungenuine. So how do you, would you then show maximum transparency? So for example, maybe she could be the influencer if she wanted to fully recover, who is maximally transparent about not just what she's wearing, how she paid for it, how much of it was gifted you know, maximally transparent, maximally authentic, maximally truthful. So she, would, I, I think that really the folks that benefit from a crisis are the ones that then show that they're going to go above and beyond any current standard to set a new exemplar or standard. Now, I, if an influencer was hearing that, they would probably be breathless thinking about all the headaches of doing what I just described in terms of you know, being very clear about what you're wearing. But that that's what I would see her do is something around how do you make yourself now seen as the most truthful, most authentic? Because her family, her, 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 her followers felt deceived. That was the biggest thing. The society felt the the society around her felt that that she had been deceptive. So how can you be seen as more truthful and transparent? What, as far as I can tell, her strategy has been was to disappear for some length of time. I called it kind of influencer purgatory. Um, Stop seeking attention, stop posting, stop doing brand deals. And now she's reemerged. And what I see her doing as she's reemerged is posting similar content to what she was posting before. So if I, I'll, I'll go to her Instagram briefly here. And just, so if I go to the, it's at dear.zia is her Instagram. And um, as you would expect, these are just mostly pictures of her lifestyle photos of her with makeup done, just talking about things like I'm, I'm looking at one from two weeks ago that says, I got some fall clothes, have a nice weekend. And she's done a photo shoot of herself wearing a big jacket and boots and her hair is in pigtails. Doesn't seem to be that she's connecting a lot of brands to these things. It looks like 13 weeks ago, she came back. And when she came back, she posted a contemplative photo was her first picture back. It says, thanks to your for your concern and support. I'm in good health. Are you all doing well? And that post got 1.4 million likes on Instagram, which is a fairly high level of engagement, especially when you count that she has 3.7 million followers. So she got somewhere around 40 engagement of followers on that post after 13 weeks. Really remarkable. So I would say that that in, in a sense already tells me. I think this person is back. If you can pull that kind of engagement on your Instagram, it's obviously very valuable to brands. But again, another dimension of this that I would say, Mark, is when I've spoken to folks in this sphere, I don't think they just see it as just money making. This is very personal business. And I think that's a challenge of it as well as as an uh, an upside. So 
to think that she went through all that and didn't feel anything and is just cynically trying to game something, I, I think that would be a mischaracterization. Not to say that these people can't be opportunistic or greedy or any of those things as well. So it's it's a very, very kind of double-edged world, that world that they're, those folks are living in. Um, yeah, and, again, and you wonder whether, just go back to our bad actor theme, you can also very clearly see a pathway out of this where you that potentially in in some domains and probably not in Korean culture, again, have no expertise. So that's a purely hypothetical statement on my part. Embracing the controversy in certain spheres could actually propel you forward even more quickly. Get a cease and desist orders from major brands, lawyers, but then once you got those cease and desist letters, that becomes part of the fodder for the bad actor genre. And it's probably worth <laughs> doing a whole right. episode on on bad actors at some point in the future, just because it is such a it's both such an interesting observation and it also runs so profoundly counter to the educational and and accepted parts of of, of crisis communication and damage control. Well, Mark, there's an interesting connection, too, to the Tiger Woods thing. So when he had that original scandal, the the crash car, the adultery, the divorce, most people that were analyzing him at the time felt that his apology felt inauthentic, half-hearted. He looked very sheepish. He didn't look himself. Um, so he was, he was actually criticized for poor crisis communications. It'd be worth an episode just on Tiger, and I think we should do that in the future. But one one question I had at the time is, what if Tiger Woods had said, you know what, guys, I'm sorry I misled you. I actually do have some proclivities that make me maybe not that attractive, but I'm going to be honest with you. I'm the bad boy of golf, and this is who I actually am. I'm going to you know, make sure my wife, my ex-wife is taken care of, but I'm not going to hide this, this gambling and philandering lifestyle of mine. That's who I am. I almost feel like that apology would have landed better than, than the sheepish one that we all felt was, well, this is this is bull like i don't actually believe that he's all that sorry about this no i think brady that that whole bad actor thing is something we really need to spend some time exploring because it is really interesting because it runs counter to everything that i think you probably learned during your formal training and everything that you and i both would understand in our our world of healthcare and normal corporate communications where it's just not in the interest of a business to be seen as sort of a bad actor uh but it certainly hasn't hurt a lot of people, particularly over the last couple of years, to embrace that negativity and use that to build your own brand. It's a very interesting observation. I can't see a major corporation doing that. I, there's no pathway forward for that. But I think for individuals, this whole bad actor shtick may actually be a way of not just building a new persona, but actually getting more notoriety for your old persona. Well, and Mark, there's something about crisis communications in that too. So I actually think the field itself is bipolar in the sense that on the one hand, the school of thought that I went into is sort of ethically aligned crisis communications that follows an algorithm that's meant around creating public confidence, trust. But there is another route. And, you know, crisis communications and PR people have a bit of a bad rap because of the other route. And that's the route of kind of dissimulation and destroy your enemies and you know, placate people that are upset, but not mean it, etc. So that's worth getting into as well. And that goes deep into the history of public relations, where, you know, in some cases, PR was selling cigarettes to women in, in the 20s as freedom sticks and, and all kinds of peculiar practices. But if we if we stick on crisis, again, I think there are almost two schools of thought, two schools of thought that are actively in practice. 
And it is a bit of a light side and a dark side of PR. So Mark, I'm, I'm looking at Zia's feed here. In her second post-recovery post, she's in a, a crop top, but you can very clearly see the brand of, I don't know if it's underwear or belt that she's wearing, Sculptor Apparel Co. So if I was willing to bet, I would say her second post back is a sponsored post and it got 1.7 million likes since June 13th. And so if she's found a way to monetize that post, very valuable, you know, exposure for that brand. So interesting. I don't, I don't mean to cast her in a cynical light, but this doesn't seem like this is about a path of restoring trust. It seems like, well, she's kind of just back to what she was doing before after being in that influencer purgatory. So that's probably just looking at the clock here, Brady, that's probably a, a good place to end to say that purgatory for influencers probably almost always has an end. And with a carefully crafted recovery strategy, you can emerge from purgatory and perhaps actually grow as a result of your time in there. Any summary statements? What, what do you think the listeners should take away from this episode, Brady, particularly with respect to their own small businesses, if they're listening and, and considering whether they should develop a crisis management plan? Yeah, I mean, 100% every business should have a crisis management plan that's germane to that business. So the first thing we learned in the restaurant case is you're likely to have a food issue at some point in your in your restaurant's history. Think about how you would handle that now before you have the issue. And, and if you don't have the money to work with public relations professionals, you don't have a team, you should try to think through how you would you would navigate that in keeping with how other brands have done that particularly well. The other thing that I would say is very... In all cases, crisis management can go best when you are able to, if, if you are at fault, admit it, acknowledge what you've done poorly, and in your recovery plan, show, demonstrate to people how you will do better than ever before, and maybe better than the minimum standards of the industry. So in the case of Gia, again, I think she needs to rebuild trust. While she should be the influencer most aligned with trust, learn from this crucible she's been through and determine how she can be seen as as more authentic and, and not just continue with the same kind of shtick that she was participating in before. I think that's where the big win for her would be. Although I look at this and I think from a monetary perspective, it looks like she's back at it and she's weathered that and it, it will stick on her resume and in Google searches about her name, but certainly not a terminal hit. And I'm not, and I'm not sure it should have been because I think there's probably a lot of other influencers globally that are wearing knockoff luxury occasionally. So again, this wasn't a capital crime anyway, but in that culture, obviously taken extreme, extremely seriously. And then and last thing, Mark, Brady, say- well, just one, one build a little bit on that. I think one thing that she did, and also one thing that the, the, the restaurant owners did do positively out of this is that they both had statements, which at least electronically appeared to have come from them and were were both deeply thought out, but also well-intentioned. One of the things that I've learned from watching others and also from some personal experiences that you know, we the first thing we do, particularly in larger enterprises, is to reach for the lawyers when we get into these situations, and and then the lawyers stand in front of the microphone, and and uh, uh, there may be occasional circumstances when that's appropriate, but heartfelt communication from the individuals involved, I think, is always going to have more value than somebody standing there in a suit who is vaguely familiar with the business and the enterprise that's been affected. Absolutely, no, well put, Mark. Well, I think that wraps us for episode two of The Crisis Beat. You can find us on all the major podcast platforms and we will have a website up and running soon at www.thecrisisbeat.com. Thank you to my co-host, Dr. Mark Crowther, and we will see you here next time.